So, is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king in your life? Now, since he is king, whether he is your king or not, since he is king, he has a kingdom. He has a domain of which righteousness rules. And he reigns and he governs over that kingdom. And it is a kingdom that is not like any other kingdom of men. For it is a spiritual kingdom. It is not of this world. It is one that where he reigns in the hearts of his subjects. In the hearts of those who are citizens of his kingdom. It is a kingdom made up those, of those people who have been redeemed. Redeemed by the Lamb of God. Redeemed by God's Son. Are you a loyal subject? Are you a loyal subject in His kingdom? Why should kingdom righteousness matter? Why is that so important for us to understand the magnitude and the gravity of how Jesus is king, reigning over a kingdom, and it is a kingdom of righteousness, and he reigns in the hearts of those who are his subjects, who are his citizens. Why is it so important to you and to me? Well, trouble and chaos will always arise when what is being done is what's right in everybody's own eyes. You know, when there is no objective standard, when there is no objective measure for what is right from what is wrong, if we don't have an objective standard outside of ourselves, outside of our culture and our society, if there's not that standard to teach us and show us what is right from what is wrong, then what the result is will be selfishness and immorality and mistreatment and injustices and all of those things will continue to, to grow and fester and increase in the world. And that's the world in which we live. We live in a world and a, and a culture where selfishness and immorality and injustices prevail often. The wisdom of this world and the wisdom of men are earthly. They are demonic, as James writes in James 3. And what will grow out of that is jealousies and selfish ambitions. Disorder in every evil thing. As you turn there and you glance very quickly at that text of James chapter 3, the Spirit speaks through this writer and says, This wisdom, that is the wisdom that is not from above, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder. In every evil thing. Take the example of the love of money or greed. You're familiar with what it says there in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, you know, where 
The love of money is the root of what? It is the root of all kinds of evil. All sorts of evil grows out and comes from the love of money. Greed. And as a result, it then in turn afflicts. It afflicts souls with griefs. And so when you remove a standard of righteousness from a person's personal life or from your family life or from a cultural life, what what will be the result? Well, the result will be all kind of trouble and chaos. And that will continue to grow. Take for example, what happened? What happened to the people of God when they forgot Jehovah and in turn forsook His command? What happened to them? Well, we're told in the Judges account, there in chapter 2 and chapter 3, that the sons of Israel did what was evil. When they forgot God, when they forgot His standard of righteousness, His commandments of righteousness, the very law that would make them righteous, when they forgot that, the result was evil. And in turn, oppression and hardship were consequences of that evil because they turned away from the righteousness of God's laws. They stopped using the objective standard that is from heaven and started walking and living according to their own thoughts, their own opinions, their own feelings, their own eyes. And evil grew. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12, it states, There is a generation who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. That's wisdom, is it not? That is divine wisdom describing the human race. That there is a generation who is pure in his own eyes, Sees, there's, a, he's, he, there's nothing wrong. I'm not doing anything wrong. They're pure in their eyes, and yet they are not washed from the filthiness that they engage in. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 5, says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Sounds a lot like what some, something that Paul wrote as well about the scribes and the strong and those who are wise and considered the cross as foolishness. Well, they thought they were so smart and so clever, and yet it is a world that is divided and overcome by evil and wickedness. And what happens is then truth becomes suppressed. And generally, truth will be suppressed by man's ungodliness and man's unrighteousness. And when that truth is suppressed, then man lives in ignorance, even though he may be clever in his own eyes and wise in his own eyes. He's living in ignorance, and as he lives in ignorance, he is also living in bondage. And he doesn't even know it. So why does it matter? Why does kingdom righteous matter to you and to me? Well, God demands righteousness. 
And he demands accountability from all of us. Every human being has an eternal soul or an immortal soul and spirit who will be judged. Everybody will be judged. Past, present, and any future people. In Acts chapter 17, you're familiar with what Paul preached there in the city of Athens as he admonished, as he warned that crowd of people about the Creator judging humanity by Jesus Christ. And verse 30 says, He's overlooked the times of ignorance, but now is declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because, verse 31, He has fixed a day in which He will judge. He will judge the world in righteousness. So God's righteous demands accountability because we're going to be judged by that righteousness and it will be through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof. And the proof is He's raised that man, His Son, from the dead on the third day just as And when He judges us in righteousness, we will all be judged according to our own actions. Are you familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10? He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so the judgment... The reality of this judgment implies that each individual, each person is accountable. And he's accountable to the one who created him, the, to the one true creator. And you think about that. The one who is created, that's you and me, the one who is created is responsible for what he does and for what he doesn't do with the life that the Creator has given him. We're accountable to our Creator. And God's righteousness demands that accountability. You think about Romans chapter 1. It describes the, the Roman world in the first century, and it sounds very similar to the 21st century. And you think about what it described there and, and how sinful man declines. But in that same chapter, it talks about how God, the Creator, is to be honored. He is to be glorified. He is to be worshipped. And He is to be served. And man is accountable to that. Not only is he accountable for the wrong that he's done, but also he's accountable for him failing to worship Him. Failing to serve Him. Failing to honor Him. And that judgment... And that righteousness will be impartial. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verse 25, the very last verse of that chapter says, For he who does wrong will receive, will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. And that without partiality. Without respect of a person's. So God's righteousness, His standard of righteousness demands the fact that every soul 
is accountable to the Creator. And kingdom righteousness, kingdom right is a requirement. It is a requirement for entrance into heaven. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 20, it says, For I say to you, Jesus here is preaching, he is teaching, and he says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Does it matter? Well, Jesus says that your righteousness is a requirement to go to heaven. Now, heaven is an eternal place. It is an eternal place where righteousness dwells. And the Apostle Peter writes about that in his epistle. That it is in the new heaven and in the earth that righteousness dwells. And rightfully so. Why? Because that's where God is. 1 John 2.29 states that God is righteous. And if you want to be born of God, you must practice righteousness. And so wherever God is, that's where righteousness is. And heaven is such a place. But to enter heaven, to live in heaven, Christians must live righteously. In Titus, Titus chapter 2. He speaks of the grace of God that has come to us and, and has come to us through Christ bringing salvation for all men. And so grace has made salvation accessible to you and to me. And he goes on to say in the very same sentence, in the same breath, God goes on to say through Christ and the Spirit, Instructing us and teaching us to deny ungodliness and unworthy desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That was true in the first century and is true in the 21st. That we who are recipients of the salvation that is through and in Christ and we are beneficiaries of that gift, we are taught, we are instructed, we are commanded to deny sinful things, ungodliness, worldly desires, and then in turn to live a certain way in this age. No matter how bad or how worse it gets, it doesn't matter. What our task is, is to live righteously, godly, and sensibly. A person cannot practice, he cannot live in unrighteousness in this life and then live with God in heaven. God has called us out of darkness into his life. And so acceptable righteousness must surpass, as it talks about there in Matthew 5, it must surpass the misapplied righteousness of the religious leadership. In the days of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership had misapplied God's laws. They had misapplied God's commandments. They had not rightly divided the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. And so Jesus, 
took this task of correcting the interpretations and the teachings of the Jews by preaching the good news of his kingdom. By preaching the good news of the gospel. And so, Matthew you know, chapter 5 through chapter 7 is a sermon about kingdom righteousness and what is expected and what is required of us as we seek to walk with God and have fellowship with Him. So that He is in us and we are in Him. And so there's a number of things that are addressed in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And we're not going to spend you know, our time there right now. But you think about some of the, the broad subjects that's brought out. For example, Jesus, when He addresses the subject of true righteousness, talks about, you know, how well that involves anger. And he has something to say about anger. What true righteousness says about anger is found in Matthew chapter 5. And you read a little further and you find, well, he also talks about adultery. And so Jesus talks about what righteousness has to say about adultery. And the thing is, is the righteousness of God does not always match the righteousness of the world. Or even the righteousness of religious leaders. He goes on to talk about also things such as keeping your word and loving your enemy and the challenge of that that is, as well as you know, things like your motives, the motive why you give to others or you pray. So the motives for doing good or forgiveness and judgment, all those things are talked about in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, and it's all about the true righteousness of God. Kingdom righteousness. Very quickly, I want to look at a couple examples of, of that being those principles being applied. For in, in Luke chapter 18, you have Jesus addressing the subject of actually of, of rebuking, actually rebuking those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And he particularly draws on an example of a generic Pharisee. He doesn't name you know, you know, anybody particular, but he talks about a Pharisee who fits that description in verse 10 and 11. And he's, he's praying you know, at the temple, and the Pharisee stands and prays to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He says, I'm so glad I'm not like those really bad folks. And I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. And he contrasts that with the publican, with the tax collector. And you recall what the conclusion is in verse 14. He says, I tell you, the publican and the tax collector were justified rather than the other. So here you've got Jesus rebuking a Pharisee who trusted in himself that he was righteous while looking at other sinners with contempt. Because the Pharisee was also a sinner. And you look to Matthew chapter 23, where you've got a number of woes that are listed, that are pronounced against you know, the, religious, the Jewish religious leadership of that day. And so just to, to glance at a few of those verses as you scan the passage. In verse 14, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Not a pretty picture of the, re the religious elite. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and fairy hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Verse 28, So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So here you have Jesus condemning God-believers, Jehovah followers. That's who this group is. They're God-believers, they're Jehovah followers, and he condemns them. Why? Because yes, outwardly they look so good. They look righteous, but what were they guilty of? They were guilty of pretense and greed and theft. Self-indulgence, uncleanness and law. All of that was what God saw. And they're being measured by God's righteousness and not by man's righteousness. And so the one who is king of kings challenges us to prioritize God's righteousness. And to do so as a number one pursuit in your life. You're familiar with Matthew 6, 33. Where after talking a number of verses about not... not to not worry and don't be anxious. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. you know, we know that verse and we know it well. You can quote it. And what's he doing? Well, the king, our king Jesus, is challenging us to prioritize this. Why is that so important? Well, it's because the cares and the concerns and the pleasures of our lives can be so distracting. That's why. It can be so consuming that such interests or such desires, and they don't have to be evil inherently, but it can be so distracting consuming that what happens is those things lord over our hearts and begin to suppress the truth. That's why loving this world or loving the things in this world is such a dangerous thing. It is a great threat to everybody. Every single one of us. The love of this world is dangerous. And we're told by the apostle of Christ, beware. Beware. Stay alert. Because it can be so deceiving that we actually blind ourselves so that we don't actually see how the things in this world are leading us astray. And so Jesus, the anointed king of God, says prioritize God's righteousness. Prioritize kingdom righteousness. And that means that we don't try to establish our own righteousness. Because if we do, that causes us to fail to subject to God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 10, Romans 10, the Apostle Paul gives us this admonition. He says, For I testify about them, speaking of his 
brethren, his Jewish brethren, he said, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Passion and fervency are good qualities to have when they're directed properly. But passion and fervency and zeal, well, they are not the standard. They are not the measure. And because here you got people who are very zealous, but it's not according to a knowledge of God, and therefore, he says, what they're doing is they're going about seeking to establish their own righteousness, and a result, they're not submitting to, they're not obeying God's righteousness. So what are some examples of that? Well, in Mark chapter 7, in Mark chapter 7, when believers neglect God's commandments, when believers neglect God's commandments and hold on to man's traditions and man's doctrines, they are not seeking God's righteousness first. In Mark chapter 7, verse 8, it reads, Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus was not complimenting these believers of Jehovah. But He rebuked them and says, Your worship to God is totally empty. It is totally useless. It is vain. And the reason why? Because you're neglecting God's commandments and you're clinging to your own traditions. Another example, when believers yoke righteousness with lawlessness, when they yoke light with darkness, they are not seeking kingdom righteousness, are they? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 14 said, do not be bound together with unbelievers. That is, do not be yoked or harnessed with them. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? You know the answer to God's question there, don't you? They have no fellowship. They have no partnership. And so therefore, when a believer tries to yoke righteousness with lawlessness and light with darkness, he is not seeking kingdom righteousness. Or in Romans chapter 5 and 6, when believers continue in sin, when believers continue in sin because grace abounds, they are not living righteously. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, he says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, Christ, excuse me, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is there any sin that the grace of God in Christ Jesus can't wash away? No. With the right heart, the right faith, the right penitence. God is willing to forgive. 
the worst kind of criminal. But does it mean that that criminal can continue in its crime? Does it? Because it goes on to say, yes, grace abounds. Where there's sin, grace is there to help. Where, where sin increases, grace is ready to abound. But he goes on to say in chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? And so when believers continue in sin, practice sin continually, because, well, grace is going to cover that. Grace is going to abound. He's not living righteously, is he? So whenever there are God believers, when there are uh, supposedly followers of Christ who are trying to justify doing what the Holy Spirit has condemned, or trying to justify not doing what the Holy Spirit has revealed to be done, when either of those cases are both occurring, they're not seeking the righteousness decreed by our King. And our King is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. And we will all stand before our King and He will judge us in righteousness according to the deeds that we have done, according to the life that we have lived. And so that's why he says, prioritize righteousness. Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom, and his righteousness. Not our righteousness. Not the world's righteousness. Not some church's righteousness. Seek his righteousness. And that righteousness can be known because it's revealed is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about the inspiration of the Scriptures, how they're profitable. And one aspect of the prophet of God's Word is that it instructs us in righteousness. It also reproves us in righteousness. It also corrects us in righteousness. And so our challenge is that we need to wear that righteousness, don't we? In Ephesians 6, it talks about the armor of God. And we're told that we're to adorn ourselves with the breastplate of righteousness. We need to wear righteousness every day. Paul, as he writes to the Philippians, reminds them that they are to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. And we need to do the same. We need to fill our life and bear the fruit of righteousness every day. That's what needs to be seen on our trees. Is the fruit of God's righteousness. But then finally, also, we need to be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. The Apostle Peter writes quite a bit about the challenge, the challenge of living for Christ in an ungodly world and the opposition that comes because of that. But he goes on to say in the third chapter, verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Chapter 4, verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. 
Why does kingdom righteousness matter? Why does it matter at all? Because it's a matter of eternal salvation. That's why. It's a matter of your salvation. That's why it's so important. And that's why it should matter to you. It is God's righteousness. The righteousness of God that has made it possible that sin's debt could be atoned could be propitiated by someone else other than you. God's righteousness has made that possible. That you and I did not and do not have to atone for our own sins. Jesus did that. And it is the righteousness of God that sent His Son to be the Lamb that would die on a cross so that through His blood you could be reconciled. Your debt can be cleared. And you can stand before God by faith in His grace righteous because you are a servant and a disciple of the King. If you are not a Christian, if you have not rendered obedience to the gospel of Jesus, and it is a gospel of righteousness, calling you to repent of the unrighteousness in your life and to become a servant of righteousness of His. If you have not become a Christian, we encourage you today to confess your faith in Jesus as God's Son. If you believe that, you believe that with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the King, the Lord. You believe that. And you believe that He died on Calvary's cross for you and for the world. But you're not submitted to Him in obedience to His Gospel call. We want to encourage you to do that today. That's... God's righteousness offering you the opportunity to turn your life around and to have hope. But you have to be willing to walk away from unrighteousness and submit to His righteousness. Will you repent of your sin? Will you confess your faith in Jesus Christ as God's Son with your mouth before others unashamedly and then be buried with Him for the forgiveness of your sins? Because that's what Jesus commands. If you're ready to do that, we're ready to help you and assist you in that commitment to God and to Christ. But if you are a Christian and there are sin in your life that you've not repented of and you've not prayed to God yet concerning, if we can assist you anyway to pray with you, to pray for you, invite you as well, make your wishes known as we stand and sing. Come.